0: And now I'd like to introduce our special guest. It is a genuine pleasure for me to welcome to you today our fifth annual Women in Public Life Luncheon. Today's event is of course a joint presentation with Equal Voice, a fantastic organization that has done more than just about any other in Canada to bring women in politics closer together. This luncheon that we do together gets bigger and better every year and a good part of the reason for that our keynote speakers are of the structure and stature of our guests today. By all accounts, the Honourable Anne McClellan has had a stellar political career. From 1993 to 2006, she served four terms as the Liberal Member of Parliament for Edmonton Centre and was part of of the governments of the Right Honourable Jean Chrétien and the Right Honourable Paul Martin. During that time, she held some of the most responsible and influential Cabinet posts in government positions, including Minister of Health, Minister of Justice, Attorney General of Canada. Minister of Natural Resources and Federal Intellectual for Métis and non-status Indians. Ms. McClellan also pinch hit for the leader as Deputy Prime Minister and was the first Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness. Today she's living proof that there's a lot of life after Ottawa and that the pace doesn't slow down one bit either. Please welcome the Honourable Anne McClellan.
1: Very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. okay. It's okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Thank you. Please sit down. Thank you for that very warm welcome, and I want to thank both the Canadian Club of Toronto and Equal Voice. Uh, for the honour uh, that uh, they are bestowing on uh, me today. And let me say that I I know that uh, I I follow in the footsteps of some of Canada's most outstanding uh, female uh, public servants, and therefore I am humbled by this honour today. And I do want to thank everyone who's here. It's a wonderful opportunity for me to catch up with some old friends, both elected and unelected. people I haven't seen, uh, perhaps in some cases for a while, but I thank you all for coming today. I do, um, before I begin my formal remarks, have a few thank yous, which would not surprise you, and acknowledgments. First of all, I want to acknowledge my two special guests today. Uh, The club and Equal Voice uh, suggested that I might like to invite two special guests to be with me today, and those special guests are Eleanor Kaplan and Patrice Marin-Best. And both these women are pioneers in uh, their own respective spheres. Obviously, many of you in this room know Eleanor from her time both in provincial politics as a cabinet minister and then as a cabinet minister in the government of Canada. And Eleanor continues her commitment to women, elected women in public life, by presently mentoring two women who are seeking elected office one at the provincial level and one. Both at the provincial level. No, federal. a federal. Federal level. I'm sorry, of course, Karen. I apologize, Karen. Uh, both women at the federal level. And I think, Eleanor, you have been a role model for many of us over the years, and you continue to be. So thank you for being here today with me. My other special guest... My other special guest comes from the private sector, and dare I say, a really tough part of the private sector for women, especially when Patrice Marin Best entered that private sector. Um, She was a senior executive in the mining and energy sector for many years. She was president and CEO of Lusker Coal Limited, and that's when I first got to know Patrice in Alberta, and she was chief operating officer of Sherritt International. And I'm sure all of you in this room know that uh, the energy and the mining sectors are still, I think, fair to say, we could describe them as non-traditional sectors for women. And when Patrice began her career uh, at Lusker Coal, there were very, very few women uh, working in the sector, and I got to know her when I was in politics, she'd come and she'd talk to me about the various things that Lusker and Sherritt were uh, doing and their technological advancements and so on. And Patrice uh, became a friend of mine, and I just have huge admiration for you. I know how tough that sector has been for women. (laughs) I also want to acknowledge the right honourable Paul Martin. Thank you so much for your remarks earlier, and uh, obviously, Mr. Martin and I have uh, had a, an interesting shared career in politics. Dare I say he entered politics before I did? Uh, that's not a comment on your age, Paul. But. Um, <laughs> Uh, Mr. Martin and I, uh, in fact, uh, have had the opportunity to work together for many years, and I, uh, appre- I guess I, I do thank you for having confidence in me, sufficient confidence to appoint me as your deputy prime minister. Thank you. And. You know, in in preparation for my my remarks today, I had the opportunity to reflect upon Equal Voice. And there are a number of women in this room, and others, but women in particular, my former colleagues from Liberal Caucus in Ottawa, who remember the beginnings of Equal Voice with Rosemary Spears, Donna Dasko, and others. And I was just reminiscing with Rosemary about the first reception Equal Voice had in Ottawa. I think it was 2002 and uh, there was a tremendous excitement in that room. There was a buzz in that room as women from all parties and hence Equal Voice's strength as a multi-partisan organization. But women from all parties coming together to uh, share the commitment uh, and the challenge around uh, how we develop strategies to get more women uh, to stand for elected office at all levels, quite truthfully. But you know, Rosemary said to me as we were reminiscing just a few minutes ago, I said, you know, Equal Voice is coming up on its 10th anniversary. And Rosemary looked at me and she said, yes, Anne, and what's changed? And I guess that's what my remarks are about today. What has changed and what we need to do to perhaps move those yardsticks further ahead. But just before I return or uh, go to that theme, you know, We we can probably, some of us in this room, feel, ask the question, what's changed, and maybe at times become a little bit disheartened when you look at the numbers on this little card provided to us all by Equal Voice. But then I look around the room, and I see the newest member of Equal Voice, who is an eight-week-old wonderful girl. Her name is Clara. I think, her mo- where is Cla- I think her mother probably took her out. But her mother is Nancy Peckford, who's the executive director of Equal Voice. And you know what? I hope and I have to believe that when Clara is old enough to vote, we will have over 50% of all our elected representatives at all levels of government women. Now- I do want to congratulate Equal Voice because it has been an effective voice, I believe, to to a certain extent. It's been effective in getting commitments from provincial and federal political party leaders like Mr. Martin, Mr. Ignatieff, Mr. Harper, Mr. McGinty, and others. And uh, what they've been able to do is is get commitments from those leaders uh, to recruit and nominate more women to stand for election. And, in fact, in 2008, there was some reason to uh, be hopeful because, in fact, because of, and I do believe because of the commitments made by the leaders at the federal level, all parties, we had 28% of all federal candidates being women. And that was the first time that we had been able to achieve that number, far from 50%, but 28%, the largest number of female candidates running ever. Equal Voice has also been very effective, I think, in in some of their programming. I love their program, Getting to the Gate. It's an online campaign school, and it speaks to all levels of government and the kinds of things women need to know and understand and ask questions about before they decide to step forward and put their name into nomination. And they have a wonderful new program, Be Her or Support Her, And I love that tagline, be her, stand up, and stand for elected office, or if you can't for whatever reason, be her, support her. And I think that is a message not only for the women in the room, but for all the wonderfully supportive men in the room. And I congratulate Equal Voice for starting that program in March of 2010 on International Women's Day this year. And I think, again, an important initiative to continue our challenge of encouraging more women to stand for elected office. But at the end of the day, and here I do not want to in any way be depressing, but Rosemary's question is the right question almost 10 years after Equal Voice was created. And how many years after the Royal Commission on Status of Women? We're coming up 30th anniversary, I believe. Or we 40, that's, that's why Paul never made me Minister of Finance. <laughs> I'm not so good with the number thing. We'd still be trying to eliminate the deficit. Anyway, um, in fact, a lot of water Uh, And a lot of words and a lot of programs and a lot of energy on the part of a lot of women and men uh, has gone under the bridge uh, over uh, the past three to four decades. And we still ask the question, um, where are we at today? Why, in fact, we only have around 21% of our national federal parliament uh, represented uh, by women? Those numbers are no different. You know, we always try to fool ourselves that, well, you know, women don't go into federal politics, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But you know what? They're really there at the provincial level, or they're really there at the municipal level. Maybe because it's closer to home or the issues matter more to their immediate families and friends. But you know what, ladies and gentlemen, as you all know, maybe this card tells us, doesn't? In fact, the women aren't there either. They're not. So at this point, it is time for us to step back, take stock and figure out one why and we need to apply some ruthless rigorous dare I say scientific uh, analysis as to why that's the case and then we need to figure out what the strategies are building on the great strategies Equal Voice and others like my own party have put in place over the years but building on them to get us to the next level and just one other thing that I do have to say I now when I'm asked to speak I generally now talk about retention of women in the workforce. I hardly ever today talk about recruitment of women in the workforce because women are there in large numbers. They've been going to post-secondary institutions now for two decades in large numbers. In many faculties and departments, they, they outnumber uh, young men significantly. So I don't talk about Recruitment of women into my profession, the practice of law. I don't talk about the recruitment of women into accounting, into medicine, into BCOM programs, really, because women are there. And you all know, you look around, I met some wonderful women from Scotia Bank uh, before uh, lunch. Women are everywhere in the workforce as you would expect commensurate with their numbers in terms of of going into post-secondary institutions universities and colleges graduating and uh... going into the workforce what i talk about now mostly is retention because this is turning up as the issue why are women leaving the workforce at whatever critical period in the practice of law it's usually as they're coming up for partnership same in accounting firms and so on It's rare for me these days to actually go back and think about recruitment, because in so many areas, women have accomplished amazing things, but it is about retention of women in the workforce and why we need flexible and adaptable workforces to ensure that they are retained and have the opportunity to pursue the uh, professions and careers that they love and have been trained for. So today, I'm actually going back to the earlier R, if you like, recruitment. And uh, it, it came as a bit of a shock to me, although not really, as Mr. Ignatchev has indicated. My job right now is to make sure that we have one-third female candidates in whenever the next election is for the Liberal Party of Canada. So I spend that part of my life thinking about that first R, recruitment. And um, it is primarily in politics. I'm not going to say only, but primarily the profession of politics where we as a society still need to focus on the first R, recruitment of women. And that's why I deliver a speech around retention called Where Have All the Women Gone? Actually, when I thought about this speech, it's not where have all the women gone. We haven't been there yet, and you know, when I put it in that context, it, it still sometimes makes me stand up and and realize the challenge that we do face. So it's not about where have all the women gone. It's about, in fact, how we recruit women in the first place into the profession of politics. Now. There has been much discussion, and, you know, you have to ask yourself, why does it matter? Some of you may be sitting here, although I hope not. Why does it matter how many women we have in elected office and the federal parliament or uh, Queen's Park or wherever it may be? I'm going to offer you some of the reasons why I think it matters. And there has been, as we know, and Mr. Martin, you would remember this, there's been much discussion in the country and in political parties, including my own, about the so-called democratic deficit. There are many possible entry points to a discussion about the democratic deficit. However, I find it discouraging to note that very rarely, if ever, do discussions around the democratic deficit focus on what I consider to be the most fundamental deficit, which is the lack of parity in representation between men and women in our key institutions of political power. Surely, the greatest democratic deficit of all is that 52% of the population of this country find themselves overwhelmingly underrepresented in those institutions of power and influence that pass laws and initiate policies and programs that affect the quality of their lives on a daily basis. Now, why does this deficit matter? And I think, for me, there are three main reasons. I, at this point, want to acknowledge, and I'm not sure whether she's here today, but a wonderful author, Sylvia Beshevkin. Is she here? Is she? There you are. And, in fact, Sylvia and I first met in Jerusalem at hebrew university at uh, canada israeli uh, academic gathering in the summer of oh six and she and i talked about her research which is all about uh... women in politics and she's written a wonderful new book called women power and politics The Hidden Story of Canada's Unfinished Democracy, and I think that the part of that title that captures my attention is the unfinished democracy part, the democratic deficit part. For me, and and Sylvia uh, talks about this in in her book as well, uh, but these are my thoughts and Sylvia expresses uh, her views on this democratic deficit much more eloquently than I do. But for me, there are three main reasons why this deficit should matter to us all. First of all, simple justice. It's a matter of equity and fairness. This to me is the most persuasive argument in favor of increasing the number of women in key positions of power. Can a society be described as just or fair or committed to equality between men and women if women continue to be so profoundly underrepresented in these positions? How can can women have any confidence that their social and economic realities are understood and considered in the enactment and implementation of legislation, policies, and programs, or that the unintended consequences, which are sometimes more devastating than direct consequences, how the unintended consequences of apparently gender-neutral initiatives Are they being identified, debated, and considered when women make up such small parts of our legislative bodies and other key public institutions? The injustice of this situation will call into question the legitimacy of our democratic institutions. Second, I believe this deficit matters because of symbolism. Political institutions that are overwhelmingly male look wrong. Women's absence from these institutions seems to suggest that we are not capable of being elected to public office. Women's presence in these institutions is necessary to alter the perception that politics is a male domain. Also, their presence may encourage more women to think of themselves as politically able. Over time, I believe this will lead to what sociologists call the normalization of women's presence in politics. You know, if we were all honest, if I asked you all to do one of those little psychological tests, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about a politician? I think if we were all honest, most of us, maybe even most of the women in this room, would have the image of a white male, right? That's my guess. That tells us the presence of women in politics has not been normalized. And it will only be normalized, as sociologists understand that term, when in fact, as many of us, when we're asked to, in a split second, think about image, politician, as many of us think of women, and women of all colors and ethnic backgrounds, women in that role. And then finally, I believe the deficit matters because of what we call substantive representation, or putting on the public agenda those issues of particular relevance to women. Most of the research done on whether women make a difference in politics for other women would suggest that the answer is yes. Women's issues can be defined as those, that ma- uh, those matters where policy consequences are likely to have a more immediate and direct impact on significantly larger numbers of women than men. And I take that definition from two wonderful female authors, Linda Trimble and Jane Arscott, both at the University of Alberta, who write and work in this area. These kinds of issues include childcare, maternity leave, compassionate leave, pay equity, health issues, and in particular health issues uh, such as breast cancer, family violence, reproductive rights, work-life balance. Research indicates that women's issues and concerns do not figure prominently in debate in legislative bodies, but but that where there are women present, it is more likely that such issues will be raised. And here I want to acknowledge my female colleagues in the Liberal Caucus in the Liberal Party of Canada and in the Government of Canada when I was there. And because I am a liberal, you know that's my background, I have to speak of that which I know best, which is the wonderful women uh, with whom I worked. And uh, some of them are here today, Carolyn Bennett, Maria Minna, Jane Augustine, Patty Torsny. And in fact, if you look at those women in our Liberal Caucus, what were the issues they worked on? They worked on pensions because the existence and the security of programs like OAS and CPP still matter more to women. And the Right Honorable Paul Martin still has the scars to show (laughs) for the fact that when he tried to fool around with pension reform, the women in the Liberal Caucus fought back. They said, what you don't understand, Mr. Minister of Finance, is that these programs matter a lot more to an awful lot of women out there in Canadian society. In many cases, these programs may be all they have for their retirement. And I think it's fair to say, Paul, you gained greater understanding. (laughs) And actually, that reform that he was thinking of doing didn't actually happen the way he was thinking of doing it. And that's due to the women of the Liberal Caucus. My colleagues in Women's Caucus also worked on issues of family violence and sexual assault laws. They worked on childcare. They worked on healthcare, seniors' issues, the challenges of immigrant women and Aboriginal women. And I'm not suggesting that we and my female colleagues here today didn't have wonderful support from many of the men in our caucus, of course they did. These issues, and research tells us over and over again, these issues do not achieve a strategically important level of prominence in the political discourse without women present to bring them forward and talk about how these issues uniquely impact on women's lives. So I think, uh, it, for all the reasons that I have just identified, This democratic deficit around uh, lack of parity or anything close to parity on behalf of women in elected legislatures is why I care about it and why I believe we should all care about it. Now, very quickly, because I do want to have some time for questions, comments, whatever at the end of this. Um, So that's why there is a deficit in my opinion. That's why we should care about it. So, why haven't things changed and what are we going to do about it? And here I'm going to be very fast. After the '06 election, um, as when parties lose elections, we go through a renewal process, Tom Axworthy called me and said, Anne, what is it you would like to do as part of our renewal process as the Liberal Party of Canada? I said, what I would like to do is look at why we do not have more women standing for elected office. And he said, fine, great. Do that. So I did, and I started my cross country uh, tour, and I traveled from coast to coast. I didn't make it to the three territories. Um, but I listened to a lot of women, and this very quickly became a non-partisan event. And that's one of the great things about working with women. Women tend to be a whole lot less partisan than men, and in fact, if we think there's a problem, we'll just all come together and say, let's talk about this and figure out if there is a problem and how we should go about fixing it all together. So. So, this renewal process introduced me to women of all backgrounds across the country and obviously uh, my own uh, colleagues and liberal women across the country, but uh, Equal Voice came to one of my uh, consultations, the YWCA came, Aboriginal women came, immigrant women came because they had a lot to say about why we don't have more women in politics and why they weren't standing for elected office. And the three reasons I have summarized everything I heard, and in fact I wrote a report, maybe still on the Liberal Party of Canada website, I don't know, for the party which we considered at our December 06 leadership convention as part of uh, our policy renewal. The reasons I give are not going to surprise you. I think the thing that should surprise us is that we're still talking about this, and not a whole lot's been done to fix it. Number one, from the women, and look, my survey wasn't scientific. These women self-selected, but they weren't all liberals, and they came from lots of different socio-economic and ethnic backgrounds. Number one, work-life balance. No surprise there, right? Uh, Women are still the primary caregivers. Um, Stats Canada confirms that for us year after year. And the thing I heard over and over again is, if I go to Ottawa, who's going to look after my kids? Now, gentlemen... I wouldn't interpret that as a lack of confidence in all you dads, but there were some serious issues there in terms of the school lunches, the laundry, the dry cleaning, you know, dropping the kids off at hockey or whatever the case may be. Number one issue, if I stand for elected office and get elected, how am I going to make this work in terms of my family, both my husband, partner, and my kids? And this is an important preoccupation for women. Just to give you one personal example, I have a stepdaughter. When I entered politics, Jessie was 12. I used to go to her Christmas concerts and her other various events at school, but I remember the Christmas concerts particularly. The last Christmas concert I went to for and with my stepdaughter was. 1993, December 1993. I was elected two months before that. Ladies and gentlemen, I was never home to go to another one of my stepdaughter's Christmas concerts. And that is a reality. And I'm not asking for anyone's sympathy. I stood for politics. It was my choice. But those are the kinds of things that women think about. And it weighs on their minds in terms of what what will this do to the people closest to me and the people I care the most about if I decide to stand for elected office. And especially if you go to Ottawa, where for most of us that is a four or five at least hour trip back and forth 30 weeks of 52 every year. The second reason women gave me, and this isn't going to surprise you either, the culture of politics. Now, and uh, let uh, let me say that just recently, and I'm not going to get into any discussion around what's been happening in Ottawa, I don't know enough about it to be able to talk about it or perhaps even have formed an opinion on it. But if you look at the cultural issues, if you like, what do women see? It is overly partisan it is confrontational a premium is placed on the thirty-second soundbite something don Duman tells me i've never mastered <laughs> um, a sense of gotcha politics is what i call it right and women i think uh... and here i excuse me gentlemen i actually believe that women when they go into politics don't see it about ego they don't see it about self interest women if they go into politics, care more about solving real problems for what I call real people. Their families, the people on their streets, the people in their communities. They don't like the confrontation. They don't like the gamesmanship because they see it as completely counterproductive. Productive, to bringing people together to solve real problems that improve the quality of people's lives. And, you know, this whole cultural thing, I thought that my the premier, former Premier of my province uh, put it in stark relief, uh, this would be Premier Klein, when quoted on his retirement as to why he was retiring. The former Premier said, it's a young man's game, it's a blood sport. You know what? That's the predominant cultural description on the part of too many people of active, elected public life, and women reject it. They reject it because I think, in my opinion, they quite rightly see it as counterproductive And it's not the way they want to do business. But, ladies and gentlemen, we've got ourselves in a chicken-and-egg situation here. Because the culture's not going to change unless we get more women in politics. And it is that very culture that is preventing women, in large part, from entering politics. We have a problem here. And we talk about it, but, as Rosemary says, what? has changed. If anything, I think the culture of partisan politics is more rabid and less productive today than it has been for a very long time. And finally, the third reason women gave me for not wanting to go into politics, media depiction of them. And it was interesting. I know there are young women here today uh, and and that's a great thing because we want to get young women involved in public life and the issues, important issues, public policy uh, as uh, early as possible and helping them understand why they matter to them and should matter to them. What I discovered was that the media depiction of women impacted younger women most profoundly. Younger women, unlike myself, I didn't even know what a webinar was until our party started doing them for women. Um, And I will say a little bit more about that in a minute. But young women, like young men, are plugged in to this new technological age. And they watch and they listen. We think they're disengaged. They're not disengaged. They're on top of almost everything. And they're impressionable. And there are certain things happening out there that disturb them profoundly. The 20-something women who came to my consultations. And I gave it a name, and she's not here today, uh, and I just have tremendous admiration uh, for how she dealt with some of these things. Young women call this a Belinda Stronick effect. And why would they call it that? Well, look, I'm not going to get into a discussion about floor crossing, but Belinda Stronick crossed the floor. David Emerson crossed the floor, right? Man, woman, different parties. Go back and read what was said about those two people and how they were described. Belinda Stronick was described by a politician from Alberta as a whore. I don't recall David Emerson being described uh, as whatever the male equivalent is. Right? And you know what struck me at the time? Young women paid attention. They listened, they heard, and they said to me, and why? Why would I do this? Why would I put my reputation, my, the reputation of my family, my children, on the line if this is how I'm going to be treated? And that's a pretty tough question. And again, look what's happening to Alina Georges. I don't know enough about this situation to know what's right or wrong or up or down in this situation, but I'll tell you one thing. No one deserves to have their picture on the front page of the Toronto Sun next to a dog and described as a dog. Nobody. <clears throat> those are the three reasons that women of all ages and backgrounds gave me as to why they're not standing for elected office. And I am going to wrap this up in just a few minutes because then you say, what do you do about it? Those are the problems. they have been with us for a long time. What do you do about them? Well, for my own party, I recommended something called active measures because I like that expression a lot better than anything else. And it speaks to action you know, you've got to act here. You can't sit back and say, oh, woe is me. Uh, you know, this is, uh, look at all these issues and women aren't standing for elected office. You need active measures to get women involved in the political process. And some of them, the cultural issue, as I say, chicken and egg is m- maybe more difficult, than some of the others. But just very quickly, and this is a brief, brief uh, list of the various things I recommended. Number one is, in elected politics, is the leader. It is the tone at the top, and Equal Voice, I think, talks about this, which is why you went after the premiers and the prime ministers. Tone at the top. Your leader has got to care about this issue, and your leader has got to drive this down through every aspect, every committee, every association in the party. And if the leader does not do that, we are not going to have real change. I, I am one of Michael Ignatieff's four national co-chairs for election readiness, and he, as the letter indicates, has asked me to take up the challenge, and I'm going to tell you it is a challenge, to find one-third of our candidates whenever the next election is as women. You know what? There are election readiness co-chairs across the country with whom I deal who still think, you know, a third women, that's nice to have, but it's not necessary to have you know the reason you need the leader? I need him behind me saying to these people out there who maybe think it's just nice to have "Uh uh-uh. I'm your leader and it's not just nice to have. We must have one-third, a minimum of one-third of our candidates women in the next election. And the leader The leader has done the right thing, in my opinion, in our party. You appoint someone and you hold them accountable. Michael Ignatieff calls me regularly to say, Anne, how are we doing? What are the numbers? Uh, How are we doing in X, Y, or Z? What about looking at this riding? I hear there's a woman who might be interested in running here. He is holding me accountable for our shared commitment, just as our party should, and I hope, hold him accountable if, for whatever reason, we were unable to meet that goal. So, leadership, tone at the top, you've got to have that. Otherwise, I do not believe we're going to have the commitment driven down through the political parties that is needed to make this simply not just nice to have. And then, obviously, um, there are a whole range of other active measures that one can put in place. Equal voice is an example of those active measures. You can have active mentoring, which is something that Eleanor's doing. These webinars that we put in place for the women who might be interested to seek a nomination in our party or for those women who were nominated. And we put together Curricula for them. And we do these, we were doing these webinar things once a week last uh, fall. And what you do is provide support to each other. You provide information, but you're providing support. And you're providing uh, a sense of confidence that the women who've stepped forward can do this and that there are other women who've got their backs. And that is important in politics. And I have to acknowledge my colleague Carolyn Bennett, who has mentored women every Sunday night for as long as she has been in politics. And it makes a difference. The women I talk to, they say, my gosh, Carolyn is so amazing. She gets on this phone and she's got dozens of women across the country. And we share our fears, our concerns, our challenges, our, our victories. And uh, it has made such a difference. And I think sometimes we underestimate, but shouldn't, the power of that kind of what I call active mentoring, where you actually are, are in there with, with the people you are mentoring and you're there with them every step of the way. The other thing that I will uh, say briefly is that, as I mentioned, I think we need early and dedicated recruitment campaigns. Uh, I thought I got out of the recruitment business, but obviously I didn't. Um, And I applaud here my own party, that's what I know best, the National Women's Liberal Commission, which in March, International Women's Day of 2010, uh, indicated that they were beginning a new grassroots campaign to help identify women to stand for nomination and provide them with the support they need. In fact, one thing we know is that women do not self-identify. They do not step up and say, Anne, I think I can be Prime Minister. I think I can run for elected office. And ladies and gentlemen, actually I've never met a man who doesn't think he can't run the country. (laughs) But there are not many women I run into. I know, looking at myself, I thought, what are my qualifications to run for elected office? What are my qualifications to be a minister in the government of Canada? Right? You're plagued by self-doubt, and you don't step forward and self-identify. As I say, not a common trait among my male colleagues. Um, And that's not a knock on you guys. We need more of that chutzpah. We need more of that ability to say, you know what? I can do this. There's no reason why I can't do this. My background qualifies me for this. But that kind of going out, seeking, recruiting, and doing it at an early age, you know what I've decided? Is that I need to identify young women, maybe not in high school, but in university, who are politically active at that level. And then I and my party need to stay with them until they may be ready to stand for elected office. It's not good enough to identify someone six weeks before the writ is dropped or after the writ is dropped. You need to identify your leaders, your female leaders, and you stay with them, and you keep involved with them, you work with them, you keep checking back, and I think we've discovered it is that kind of active, ongoing recruitment that we need to make sure that we're identifying all those incredibly talented women out there who can make a contribution as elected politicians. Okay, I'm going to conclude there. There are lots of other things. I didn't talk about funding because actually, interestingly, very few women brought up the issue of funding uh, when I did my consultations. That was not one of the big barriers to women standing for elected office in my party, and there are a number of reasons for that. I'm not saying it's not an issue. It just wasn't identified, and I think my own experience working with women, it's not as big an issue as some people sometimes think it is. So um, those are some of the active measures that I believe are important. This is a long-term thing. Rosemary, you've been at this 30, 40 years. Well, you wrote about these things in journal- when you were a journalist. I remember you coming to see me, that was 17 years ago. You haven't been involved with Equal Voice, but a lot of us in this room, I went to university in the late 60s. That's when I started to get involved, so it's been 40 years for a lot of us. This is a long haul. This is about changing society at its most fundamental levels. It's about changing the way we as men and women see each other, and what are the appropriate roles, how we define the appropriate roles for each other. This is tough stuff. It's not easy. I think we took our eye off the ball 20 years ago, 15 years ago. We thought the revolution was over. Well, I'm here to tell you the revolution is not over because we are not even close to using a sports analogy getting this ball over the line. We <laughs> we have so far to go in terms of identifying, encouraging, supporting and getting elected women who represent 52% of the population. And uh, I come back to uh, where I began, which is that this is about democracy, whether it's unfinished or whether it's a democratic deficit. It goes to the very heart of whether we have a vibrant, functioning democracy. So I would encourage all of you, men and women, to be involved, get involved, identify women, and support them. As Equal Voice says, to all the women, be her. But to all the women and men who can't be, for whatever reason, her, please, please support her. Thank you.
2: My name is Donna Dasko and I'm the National Chair of Equal Voice. I am so thrilled to be here today on behalf of Equal Voice to thank Anne McClellan for her wonderful comments and to present her with our Equal Voice Eve Award. I did not know that Anne would devote her comments today entirely to our cause. I am absolutely blown away by her analysis, which is amazing, everything she said, it rings so true to me and to every one of us involved with Equal Voice and every one of us in this room who supports our cause. And I'm, I'm absolutely delighted with your comments today, Anne, and um, I am so grateful that you devoted your entire speech to our cause. And I want to return the favour by d- devoting my comments, my f- brief comments to you, Anne, thank you. to thank you for Uh, for your achievements in politics. Let me say this. It has been said that Canada is a country without a star system. We don't have stars, but we do recognize an exceptional person when we see one, and that exceptional person, that exceptional Canadian is the Honorable Anne McClellan. We, we heard earlier from John the outlines of her career in politics. Anne, moved, Anne McClellan moved from the comfortable and high ranking world of law. She was a dean of, at the uh, law school at uh, the University of Alberta. And she moved from that world to the precarious world of politics, which was even more precarious because, of course, she was a liberal in the great province of Alberta. Um, Anne McClellan won each of her four elections by the narrowest of margins and was even declared defeated in two of those elections, and she gained the nickname Landslide Annie as a result of her efforts. (laughs) Anne McClellan won the confidence of two Prime Ministers. She was appointed Deputy Prime Minister, and she left her mark on the major issues of our time. What were those issues? They were health care, they were energy, and they were national security. So she left her mark on those major issues that, that our country faced. And if we think about those areas, national security and energy in particular, and in fact if we think of the words law, the domain of law, and the domain of politics, another thing comes to mind. These domains are male dominated. Anne McClellan figured out how to survive and how to prosper in these settings. Some women who operate in these male-dominated settings earn the label Queen Bee, but this could never describe Anne McClellan. Anne McClellan is the quintessential worker bee. She is the Canadian who works hard, who takes nothing for granted, and who gets the job done. Through a through an amazing combination of optimism, of her hands-on-deck practicality, and her strong intelligence, Anne McClellan has gone from strength to strength and from success to success, and we are all the better for it. So today, Ann McClellan, we honor your achievements. We thank you for supporting women, we thank you for your strong comments today, we thank you for supporting women in their careers, and we thank you for showing us that great things are possible for women in this most precarious of domains of politics. You are a most fitting recipient of our Eve Award. And I'd like to welcome you to the podium with my colleague Leslie Byrne And to award you the Eve Award for 2010. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you you all. Thank
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.
3: I'm Helen Burstyn, and I have the honour of thanking Anne, and it really is a very special honour. It's been wonderful to see and listen to you today, Anne. Truly enlightening, some might say electrifying. It always shines through when someone has a real passion for the work that she does, and clearly you do. And I'm sure many young women hearing uh, hearing you today will look at their own careers with a greater sense of possibility. They can't help but be inspired by what you've said, and more to the point, what you've done. Even at my advanced age, I find you an inspiration. (laughs) Being a role model for young women, all women and men, that probably wasn't one of your primary reasons for choosing a life in politics, but it may turn out to be one of your greatest legacies, just the same. Thank you again for joining us today. For continuing and enhancing our tradition of honoring women in public life, and for making today's luncheon so memorable, thank you.
0: So, in uh, in closing, thank you, Helen, and thank you again, Anne, and thank you all for being here today for our fifth annual Women in Public Life Luncheon. We hope you all see you all again next year. On your way out, please stop by the Equal Voice and Women of Distinction uh, tables for more information um, on these remarkable organizations and show your support. Also, please note that on the tables, there are donation cards. Uh, Feel free to donate if you wish and fill out the cards and send them to e-volunteers who are standing at the doors. This concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We are grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian Club events This concludes our meeting. Thank you and have a wonderful afternoon.